0: Namaste and welcome to Pods by PI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneursing. My name is Ridesh Sapkota. In today's episode, we have PI colleague, a conversation with Sarita Sapkota on the state of Nepal's public finance management system. Sarita works with the World Bank's Poverty and Equity Global Practice coordinating with its support on local governance, public finance management and citizen engagement. She was a public finance management advisor for the British Embassy Kathmandu from 2020 to 2023. She has worked with several local and international organizations on similar themes. In today's episode, Asles and Sarita discuss Nepal's public finance management in the federal system and its shortcomings. They have further delved into the major challenges faced by the various tiers of government and conclude by discussing possible reforms to make the PFM effective and transparent for the general public. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay.
1: Welcome to Pods by Sorry, Sarita. We are pleased to have you here.
2: Thank you very much, Ashleesh. It's pleasure to be here. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you?
1: I'm great. So, uh, shall we start the conversation? Sure, sure. Okay. So, uh, as we all know, Nepal's transition to the federal system has been anything but smooth, owing to the inherent structural deficits and lack of institutional and human resource capacity. And one area where this is clearly visible is the public finance management system in Nepal. Also, we uh, refer it to as PFM for our convenience. But for our listeners who may not be familiar to this term, PFM is the set of laws and processes used by governments to mobilize revenue, allocate funds, undertake spending, and report these transactions. So, Sarita, while my main goal today is to discuss with you the challenges in our public finance management system, but before we get into that, could you begin by briefly shedding light on the current system of public finance in Nepal and how the responsibility is shared between the three tiers of government?
2: Right. Yeah, sure. So basically, as you said, public finance management system is like elements of an annual budget cycle, right? From formulation to execution to accounting, reporting, and then there is external scrutiny and audit. So... Before the federal system, like all spending units, all administrative units at the subnational level, for example, we had the district structures, we had the village development committee structures, all of them used to be just spending units of the federal government or just one government in that case, the unitary government, and policies were decided at the center, reporting standards are decided at the center, priorities, delivery standards are decided at the center, and subnational entities input in the process, but are not necessarily accountable to local level citizens or local level other accountability measures. They are basically accountable just to the center. But in the federal system, the distinction is like subnational governments, provincial and local governments in our case have own budget formulation processes, execution processes and reporting requirements. So basically they plan according to their local needs, budget according to their local needs Oversight is from Office of the Auditor General as well as the Financial Comptroller General's office, but also from citizens who live in that area. And then also accountability comes from the electoral process where local level leaders are elected through local and provincial level elections. So this means that now they are responsible for a certain number of functions, which is constitutionally mandated. Schedules 5 through 9 outline those responsibilities of different levels of government that are exclusive and concurrent. So expenditure happens based on those functions assigned by constitution and the laws and regulations that follow the constitution. Now, in terms of revenue, though, Nepal's revenue or fiscal design for revenue centralizes the pot so collection happens all at the federal level it all trickles up and then later it trickles down through the intergovernmental fiscal transfer systems. So basically in summary expenditure happens through functional assignments in the constitution as well as following laws and revenue comes centralized and then is later decentralized through the intergovernmental fiscal transfer system.
1: So this seems to show a vertical fiscal gap in our system So, given that our system focuses on decentralized service delivery, does this not become challenging for the local governments for service delivery purposes?
2: Right. The vertical fiscal gap in the Nepali fiscal system is by design, perhaps primarily to maintain equity across different provincial and local governments. And the main mechanism for responding to that is through the intergovernmental fiscal transfer system. So the ease of service delivery is underpinned on how functioning the intergovernmental fiscal transfer system is. So I think it's probably helpful here to talk about what the intergovernmental transfer system is right now. So basically, there are six ways in which a provincial and local government can get resources One is own source revenue. For example, local governments can have business taxes, house rent taxes, that is solely theirs, and they can use it in whatever way they want that's kept with them. The second one is revenue sharing, like things like value-added tax, excise duties, and royalties from natural resources. They are shared through a formula assigned by the fiscal commission. So this is the revenue sharing bit. The other four main fiscal transfer mechanisms, so first is the fiscal equalization grant, which is based on expenditure needs and revenue capacity. That is where the fiscal commission, again, has the strongest and the more explicit role. Every year it recommends certain amount to be transferred to provincial and local governments based on a specific formula that they use. The second one is conditional grants, which in the constitution is assigned as a grant mechanism where provincial and local governments are expected to help the federal government reach their goals through some conditional mandates, say an infrastructure project. The third one is the complementary or matching grant, which is a local or provincial level government can apply to the National Planning Commission to fund infrastructure-related projects or some special projects. And the last one is a special grant, which again goes through the National Planning Commission to fund basic services like education on top of whatever already happens on these service areas. And then for special needs of inclusion and bringing equalization among several provincial and local governments. So I'll stop there on those six ways in which transfers and resources get funneled into provincial and local governments.
1: So you've Already highlighted how the transfers happen. So I'll bring the question, bring in the conversation into the fiscal commission, the Natural, National Natural Resources and Fiscal Commission's formula that you mentioned that finalizes or the distribution of the fiscal equalization grant. That formula seems to be under quite severe criticism. And also, apart from that, we're also talking about conditional grants which kind of are distributed on an ad hoc basis. So uh, this kind of leads into a system of disproportionate distribution of financial resources. What are your views on this?
2: Yeah, so you're asking two things. Uh, One is about the fiscal equalization grant, and second is about the conditional grants. What purposes are they serving in terms of service delivery needs in the federal context, right? So I'll tackle them one at a time. So on the fiscal equalization grant formula, so the formula is 70% of the allocation is based on expenditure needs and revenue capacity, which is called the fiscal gap. And then 5% on the status of revenue collection of the specific provincial or local government, 10% on infrastructure development, for example, what is the road density like, how much electricity access people have, how much water access people have. And then the other one is on economic and social inequality indicators, which is 5%, and human development index, 5%. And it looks quite objective, but I think most of the criticism that you're probably referring to are about transparency, are about the objectivity of these criteria mentioned in the formula. So the first one, which is like the largest share of the fiscal equalization grant, 70%, is the fiscal gap question, where NNRFC, the National Natural Resources and Fiscal Commission, in short, just the fiscal commission, is supposed to determine what the expenditure needs are and what the revenue capacities are. But how do you come up with the expenditure needs of 753 local governments sitting in one place here and looking through limited amount of statistics available to you that is not updated, right? What are the service delivery standards? What are the clearly delineated roles of provincial and local governments? You have to have all these parameters objectively defined so that you can objectively say this is the expenditure need and this is the revenue potential. Even in revenue, the information we have right now is... We know how much money is collected through the systems we have set up in the five years. But we don't know things like what is the cost of this revenue collection? How much can you project based on this? You know, So even there, so the two parts of the fiscal gap issue, expenditure needs and revenue capacity, both things are brought into question, the objectivity of that and the underlying data gap that exists in determining both of that. The other issue, major issue with the fiscal equalization grant right now is the priorities set in there sort of continues with the pre-federal mindset of service delivery, which is very pro-rural area centered. You know, it's about it's access driven, right? And which is fair. Taking, taking roads to places that are unconnected, having a minimum number of schools or students in every rural area of the country that is so vast and dispersed, that is the governmental priority that has always been. But now we have to realize that about 50% of Nepali population lives in urban areas. So right now, if you look at how expenditures are done, Rural areas, remote areas, get two to three times the expenditure of compared to more accessible areas, which is generally the Tarai or other urban areas. But like when majority of population live there and they are underfunded, then you have to think about the quality of service delivery where access already exists. So I think the priority for the government, a policy priority for the government, is how to balance those two things. So I think those are like three fundamental issues, the statistics, the the, the way, the method in which revenue capacity and expenditure needs are determined, and then the policy priority. I think those are the three things with the fiscal equalization grant.
1: Okay, shall we move on to the conditional grant?
2: Yes, sure. On the conditional grant, I think the conditional grant issue cuts right into the heart of why we federalized in the first place which is basically the rationale for federalism was efficiency, effectiveness based on local priorities, moving away from one size fits all kind of approach, right? For example, you don't need to have a malaria prevention budget in a mountain area where no mosquitoes exist, like that That being the old example. So, But then when conditional grants are so heavy, which is in my back of the envelope calculation is probably about 70% of this fiscal year's budget. So, When you're still continuing with a conditional grant system where basically line ministry are changing the older line of service delivery through them into just like transferring it to provincial and local governments, it just makes them the signpost for doing what the federal government wants. So it's basically what you call beating the argument for why federalism was introduced in the first place. And it is hard to like get away from that practice because all levels of government are concerned about a minimum amount of service delivery, even in this like implementation phase. So that's fair. But I think one of the things that is under discussion right now in every paper you see on fiscal federalism they'll talk about is how can we reform conditional grants in a stepwise manner so that, you know, the way the constitution envisions for service delivery to happen through provincial and local governments actually starts happening.
1: All right we'll come to the reforms at the end of the episode but for now I'll bring your attention to another major issue that has been in the system Nepali government systems before federalism as well as it is continued now that which is corruption misappropriation and misuse of funds and how do you think the current system ensures transparency and accountability in the transfers that happen to the local governments or the subnational governments and and the spending done by them?
2: Right, so there are, I think, three parts to the question. One is our ability to track what is happening in terms of fiscal transfers, who makes allocations on what basis, where is it posted? The second part is making that transparent, which is where it is posted part. And the third part is based on what we know, do we act? That is the accountability bit. Do people respond based on what you see? So the first part, which is ability to track, I think in the last five six years we have come a long way in our ability to track, in in which I mean like setting up the systems, the legislations that are required, the forms that have to follow from the legislations, the IT systems that need to be set up, you know, to comply and report based on those systems. So for example, Sutra, which is the local government planning, budgeting, accounting software, now that is now implemented all across the country. So we have like a basic idea of who have passed their budget, how much is it, who is spending real time as of today. So that tracking systems, we have established to a large degree at provincial levels, federal levels, local levels, all of them. So we are able to track But what are we doing with that ability? Are we putting that up online? Is sutra data available for public to see what percentage of budgeted allocations are being spent as of today? Then the answer is probably not. You can go to your local government and ask them for a sutra output on expenditure, but then... How much of that happens, how much incentive there is to make that happen, that is still in question. But that said, on the transparency bit, I think Nepal does very poorly on the open budget index. On public participation, we do much worse in the open budget index as well. So we have a long way to go in transparency. We have basic systems like the annual financial consolidated statement is made by the Financial controller General's Office. It is posted on their website. The Treasury position is posted on the website. NPC publishes information at the budgeting season, NNRFC does. But like the nitty gritty details, like for example, the data sheet, which NNRFC uses to do the calculations, we can't see them, right? So there is a lot to do on the transparency bit and even more to do on using that information to make public sector accountable, like using public accounts committee effectively, acting on the audit observations effectively. Now that is still not taking place to a degree that should happen.
1: Okay, I'll follow up with another question on corruption. Primarily because our public procurement system is one area where corruption is most prevalent. So uh, at the local levels, what are the governments doing to reduce the risk of corruption and these kind of irregularities we can say in the procurement process?
2: I think procurement, in my personal opinion, remains one of the weakest areas of reform where progress has happened really, really slowly. But that doesn't mean that nothing has happened in the last five years. The electronic procurement system, it has started in 2019, I believe, and it has started to roll out across different levels of government. Provincial and local governments use the 2007 Procurement Act, which is federal, to do their procurements. And in cases where provinces like Lumbini, who have come up with their own procurement acts, they need to be in tandem with the Federal Procurement Act. But fundamental reforms or fundamental issues that remain in procurement, I don't think that has been addressed to a large degree. And if you look at the Auditor General report, you will see what the issues. Is. So I don't think we have made a large dent in addressing corruption because of the large political economy factors that keep these incentives sustained. So yeah, the answer on this one is a little bit what do you call pessimistic? At least in my opinion, we haven't made a lot of progress in that, and I guess public opinion agrees. Yeah. Hi there, this is Shriya Rana from Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. We hope you're enjoying Pods by PEI. As you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources. We rely on the support of our community to keep things going. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us to continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you are interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash podsbypei. Every little bit helps and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now let's get back to the episode.
1: So uh, when we talk about public finance management, there is always this discussion that uh, there is about public expenditure and financial accountability secretariat, right? So uh, in Nepal also introduced the, or started this secretariat uh, a few years ago. So uh, what does this secretariat do to ensure accountability and transferable transparency? And as per the global standards, where does Nepal stand?
2: So, yes, the two things on... PIFA, Public Expenditure and Financial Accountability. One is the secretariat that is under the Ministry of Finance, but is housed at the Financial Comptroller General's office. And then the other is the PIFA assessment. I'll go with the assessment first. So Nepal's had its first PIFA assessment in 2008, and then the second one in 2015. In 2015, compared to 2008, we had very marked progress. PFM systems were becoming more and more robust. The one that we're, that The country is undergoing right now will be our third PIFA assessment and the first federal PIFA assessment in the federal system. But you have to note that even this most recent PIFA assessment is only at the federal level, it's not assessing PFM qualities or systems at the subnational level. So I don't know what the results of this PIFA assessment will be. Hopefully it will be much better than what we had in 2015. But yeah, that's, that's on PIFA assessment. But on the PIFA Secretariat's role, I think PIFA Secretariat was formed specifically to undertake reforms in public finance management sector. And it has worked a lot in the federal setting in the past years. And it is sort of like grappling with the issue of how to make PFM more decentralized, especially PFM reforms more decentralized. It came up with the update of the PFM reform strategy that we had in 2017-18. It updated it recently. But I think it is also at the stage where it is like trying to integrate provincial and local level structures in its own functioning. Right now, what it does is is coordinates across several PFM agencies, which is like National Planning Commission, Office of the Auditor General, the Public Procurement and Monitoring Office, so several dozens of them that exist out there and coordinates donor support on PFM reforms, as well as other PFM high-level priorities. But yeah, it's more of a coordinating role, strategy development sort of a role.
1: All right. So another uh, issue I would like to highlight when it comes to the PFM system, or maybe we can say this is more of a macro problem. When we discuss our national budget, there is a problem of lack of budget realism, excessive current expenditures, ineffective capital expenditures. And obviously, in the past few years, we've also seen rising debt burden. So given that if you look into the statistics, the estimates that uh, are projected in the budget and when the actual expenditure or the actual revenue data comes out it's more or less 20 percent lower than the estimates so we can see the problem of the budget realism here and even in the new budget announcement we've seen that overall expenditure figures have increased but slowly we can see the there is a reduction in the funds for the subnational governments So given that this is coming in a scenario where local governments have been struggling to provide effective service delivery primarily because of lack of human capital and the the subnational governments also are not given the authority to hire them. So given that the federal system shows intentions of lowering current expenditure but subnational governments want to hire more people to provide effective service delivery How do you think the decision makers can strike a balance here?
2: So recurrent expenditure is not all bad. Service delivery requires a lot of recurrent expenditure, which is basically teachers, health workers, and several other frontline staff to actually deliver services to do civil registration and whatnot, right? The functions of a government, I think the issue is not with recurrent expenditure, but how recurrent expenditure happens, the quality of spending rather than the quantity, right? Now... I think the issue is that we have a human resource, but not in the right places. Everybody wants to be just hired at the federal level, wants to be a federal level employee, wants to go to accessible places, which is naturally the incentives for civil service workers, which is understandable. But I think it's the government job to like allocate them effectively, efficiently, and as per need. So the allocation is not just about increasing the numbers. So when we hear about capacity constraints, especially human resource capacity constraints at provincial and local level, it is not about hiring more people, but adjusting people that we already have. And then even when you do hire new people, you think about the fiscal capacity of those concerned local and provincial and local governments to do that. So if you're linking spending with results, then you have better outcomes on service delivery. But I think the problem right now is we're not able to link inputs with outputs, or outcomes in our case of service delivery which is why we keep on hammering about recurrent expenditure. But even if we brought the recurrent expenditure down, our service delivery is not going to automatically improve.
1: All right. That's an interesting take. So now I'd like to bring the conversation into the main issue, which is the challenges in our public finance management system. And then we maybe talk about certain reforms that can... Uh, be done to improve this system. So a major challenge, as I mentioned in the beginning, has been the capacity deficit in the human resources in our government institutions, majorly in budget planning and implementation process, and also maybe in the accounting and reporting of the revenues and expenditure. So basically these issues kind of are seen heavily on the lower tiers of government, where if you look into the recent news we can see that 42 local governments failed to announce their budgets on the given deadline. And that number was quite higher the year before, which was around 71. So why do you think this is the case? Uh,
2: So timely budget formulation is really, really important. But if you look at the numbers, like 42, 72, it is all below 10%. And then in the hierarchy of priorities, I think there are other key priorities on budget formulation and execution that we need to look at. The capacity issues of local governments is not so much on budget formulation processes. They are aware, they know that they need to make medium-term expenditure framework, the processes are clear, there are five different guidelines about how to make budgets, so everybody knows what they're doing at the local level as far as I have seen. I think the delays come from the political process, the political bargain, which is also prevalent at the federal level, at the provincial level, and which is also reflected in the local level. So it is not so much of not knowing what to do and not having the capacity of what to do. It is it is the process of the political, you know, give and take, which is the reality of our political economy. But if you're talking about other issues, like you mentioned, on like underutilization of buzz- budgets, which is driven by procurement issues the timeliness of receiving revenue receipts, then actually linking the budgets you have to like medium-term expenditure frameworks so that you know what you're doing the next two years, all of that and the systematic issues that you need to take care of while developing budgets. I think those constraints do remain because it's linked to capacity, but it is also linked to other several systemic issues. That's that's my main point.
1: Okay. So something you've mentioned before in the conversation was about the lack of citizens' involvement in the public finance management process or the system, maybe. So, given that there is a lack of involvement of people in policy designing or the budget formulation and implementation processes, how do you think the government can increase the citizens' involvement and the other way around? How do you think the citizens can play an active role in public finance management?
2: Yeah, so citizen engagement is a very interesting part of like working in local governments, governance in Nepal because we have a very rich history of citizen engagement from panchayat era to, you know, through all the decentralization process as well. And if you look at like different users groups, like forest users group, there are school management committees where parents are involved. You know, there are several community level structures that are active and are quite successful in various sectors but when it comes to public finance management, we're not being able to bring citizens in in the budget formulation, execution, or the accountability process. So that remains very curious. The legislations on paper, the policies are clear on how citizen engagement should happen. We have a clearly outlined 7-step planning process which used to be the 14-step planning process before federalism. So the 7-step outlines how ward chairs need to invite all toll development committees before the budget formulation happens and then they are given like specific weightages on how priorities are assigned. So it is all written out on paper. But what happens in reality is some ward chairs will skip the meetings. Some local governments will not organize public hearings that are required because there are time constraints, there are budget constraints, you know, they're already running behind on time on timely budgets, all of that. They don't know the budget ceiling in time. So several constraints come about. And then the citizen engagement part is the one that is most easily overlooked. So I think what local governments and even provincial and at federal level, citizen engagement being very, very low, I think the government has to make like a concentrated effort on taking ample time to hold meetings, to bring in experts when needed to do the deliberation transparently, either it's on radio or television or whatever format works, you know. So there has to be a concentrated and strategic effort in doing this at all three levels. And on the citizens part as well, I think we, there is no, you know, there is no gap in having organized community structures that are already there. But I think they need to be more active in terms of like demanding accountability. Like, for example, pressurizing local governments to form public accounts committee with citizen involvement. Right now, public accounts committee are optional for local governments. They are not required, but some local governments can form them. So demands like that, I think local structures can make them.
1: All right. So uh, any other challenges that you'd like to highlight, which we've maybe not discussed before?
2: Yeah, we have touched upon a little bit on the human resource capacity a bit, and a lot is stuck on the civil service bill. So it has been stuck in the parliament for about five years now, I want to say. I think it started in 2018. So I think it's not just to like pass the bill that has been pending for five years, but pass it in a way the constitution envisions, which is if provincial and local governments are mandated to deliver services Then they also need to be able to control the movement and incentives of people who deliver these frontline services. So that political bargain on the civil service staffing bill has cost the country a lot. And I think it needs to come out right in a way that implements the vision of federalism that we started with.
1: Okay, Okay. that sounds... Uh, Very problematic for now. (laughs) So I'd like to bring the discussion into the reforms necessary to address the challenges we have discussed. So firstly, I'd like to ask you what reforms can be implemented to improve the mechanisms in the fiscal transfers we discussed in the beginning, specifically for fiscal equalization and conditional grants maybe?
2: Let me start with conditional grants. I think reforming conditional grants is easier said than done. And the reform of conditional grant is tied to the civil service reform because it's all about teachers, conditional grants, a large portion of it is in education, health sector, frontline payments of salaries and, you know, other recurrent expenditure as we talked about. So it is not easy, but I think one of the ways in which we can start doing it is like improving the quality of those conditions rather than like hundreds and hundreds of earmarks, just sending it out as a block grant where you prescribe the results more than the inputs, so that local governments can think about, provincial and local governments can think about how to get to that result in a way that is suitable for them and their priorities and constraints, whatever they are. So I think thinking more in terms of results, the delivery being more in a block grant sort of a way, and improving the quality of conditions, I think that is the few initial steps we can take in the conditional grants reform. And at the same time, at the decision-making level, there needs to be like a long-term thinking on how to gradually reform conditional grants in a more substantive way rather than fixing it just for the short term. So that's on the conditional grant. On the fiscal equalization grant, as we said earlier, I think transparency is the most important thing to declare all the sources that have been used is to show the data sets that have been used in what way, how to use the most recent information capacitating data systems that feed into that formula i think that is another way and the other is a very open policy debate on the parameters considered that goes into that formula and how the formula underfunds some provincial and local governments at the cost of you know others so yeah that's on the fiscal equalization bit
1: so uh, so when we talk about federalism there's always the, the need to to provide fiscal autonomy to local governments and also provide them with certain expenditure flexibility. Given that we want to stick to these elements of federalism, what kind of reforms do you think the government governments can bring to ensure transparency and accountability, but also providing that autonomy and flexibility?
2: A lot, of, a lot of the promise of federalism depends on the agencies that provincial and local governments can exercise in how they deliver services. So I think the steps to getting there is, one, clarifying exactly what the roles are. We have come a long way in clarifying the unbundling report and several other legislations that have come after that. But even then, there are certain areas where it is not very clear. And even when policies are clear, when we implement them, the practice needs to follow what is written on paper. Like for example, even though there are legislations that say, okay, below 25 lakhs infrastructure projects shouldn't be done by federal government, the Department of Roads receives a call from someone and is forced to put like a 25 lakh road on this certain area where it's not supposed to work, right? So just improving that practice as well is important. At the federal level, letting go of some of your responsibilities. Right now, the federal government is still responsible for 60% of direct expenditures, which is not necessarily federal, in my opinion. So letting go of several functions that have been mandated legally to be let gone. Yeah, that, that needs to happen. The other bit of your question is about how to ensure that that is done with accountability. I think we are getting on that path a little bit where, you know, trances of money that go into local governments are dependent on... So the second trance is dependent on how well you report on the first trance. If there's no reporting of how you've spent the first trance, you'll not get the second trance. So we are tying that up with the system a little bit. The fiscal commissions... Latest allocation also takes into consideration performance a little bit. 4% after the minimum allocation is given, less than 4% actually after the minimum allocation, they look into several performance questions, which is about have they looked into the number of irregularities the Office of the Auditor General has pointed out and what have they done about it? Have they brought their budgets in time like you've said there before? So we we are tying it with daily practices a little bit. But the downward demand-side pressure from citizens in understanding what's happening at the local level, I think that also needs to like continue.
1: Right. So obviously, when you connect it with the performance indicators, as you mentioned, that will all enhance the accountability, rightly pointed out. So most importantly, we come back to the service delivery. So since the adoption of the federal system what has been done in terms of reforms to enhance service delivery, especially in the local governments? What kind of upgrades have you seen in this maybe short period of federal
2: structure? I think honestly, this is the hardest question for me among the one you've asked on what is specifically being done to improve local government service delivery. Like a Big flagship initiative of Nepal government with lots of donors was the Provincial and Local Governance Support Program, PLGSP, which has like a center in every province through the Provincial Center of Good Governance, and they're expected to help local governments within their jurisdiction with several capacity needs. It's an ambitious program, it's a flagship program, and it has goals from helping with IT to trainings to making medium-term expenditure frameworks to a whole range of support that is being provided but i but initiatives but initiatives like that need to be sustained even after the donor funding runs out so the government will think about something like the public finance management training academy which is a permanent structure that exists so i think the link is to use the funding that is available now through donor funding or government's own funding and link it with permanent structures like the PFM Training Academy or in other capacity development areas. There are several academies like that. So to ensure that kind of training takes place and then the recruitment happens in the same way. But I think the main role here on capacity building is for provinces to step up their game because the vision of the constitution and the vision of several laws we have as per that is that provinces take the function of an aggregator Provincials take a function of monitoring and coordinating across local governments and helping local governments build that capacity. For example, in health, provinces are supposed to recruit health workers. So provinces have that role that is stipulated in writing, but they need to take up that role more seriously and rather than always focusing on direct delivery themselves. So yeah, I think provinces have a a big role to play in that capacity building because for a federal government also it's a scale problem right, on how to do it.
1: Okay, Yeah, as you rightly pointed out, there has been question in the role of the provincial government and that is my final question to you. Given the broad observations of the public finance management practices in Nepal and so-called fiscal federalism practices in Nepal, there is strong opinion in the public discourse that federalism has become too costly for Nepal. How do you respond to this?
2: If you look at the numbers pre and post-federalism, so the initiation of intergovernmental transfers in 2018 has elevated the general government expenditure. So the numbers are there. We are paying more. But I think the question is not about if federalism in general more expensive. I think I would say that not implementing federalism in the line the constitution envisioned is the thing that is costly for us. For example, Despite federalism, direct federal government spending has not come down. The intergovernmental transfers are on top of what the central government spends itself. So rationalization of that process, federalism means letting go of certain responsibilities that were at the federal level so that you can pass on to provincial and local governments level. And that hasn't effectively happened, right? So district-level structures are also still maintained, a lot of pre-federal structures are remaining, and we still continue to maintain them. So naturally, that is expensive. But if we follow the constitutional vision and delegated public spending in services like the way the constitution envisioned, then probably it wouldn't look as expensive. And if you compare it to results uh, and outcomes later, then if the costs justify the outcomes, then it is not expensive anymore, right? It's just effective.
1: So mainly you could say that more of the cost is coming because the federal government is unwilling to let go certain responsibilities which could be delegated easily to the lower governments.
2: Right. There needs to be some adjustment that that needs to happen. Yeah.
1: Okay. So with this, we've come to the end of this episode. Any last word to our listeners? Or maybe tell them what, the kind of work you're currently engaged in.
2: Yeah, so the kind of work I do right now is with the World Bank. I work with their Poverty and Equity Global Practice and coordinate their work on public finance management, local governance, citizen engagement, and data. So it's like an intersection of four different topics, but public finance management is intersection of all of those things. And of course, whatever I said today are my own personal views and not of the organizations that I work for.
1: So mostly what we've talked about today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Thank you, Sarita, for agreeing to be a part of Pods by PAI and sharing your wonderful insights on Nepal's public finance management system. It was a pleasure having you here.
2: No, thank you for inviting and thank you for listening.
1: And to our listeners, I'd like to thank you all for listening to Pods by PAI. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Namaste and goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Oscillation's conversation with Sarita on the state of Nepal's public finance management system, progress and shortcomings. Today's episode was produced by Neerjan Rai with support from Sonia Jimi, Kusihang, Hang and me, Ride Sapkota. This episode was recorded at PI studio and was edited by me, Ride Sapkota. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Sakya from Jindabad if you like today's episode please subscribe to our podcast also please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on spotify apple podcast google podcast or wherever you listen to the show for pei's video related content please search for policy entrepreneurs on youtube to catch the latest from us on nepal's policy and politics please follow us on twitter at tweet 2 pei that's tweet followed by the number two and PEI. and on facebook at policy Entrepreneursing. You can also visit pi.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Trides. We'll see you soon in our next episode.